Welcome to What Happened Next, a podcast about newish books. My name is Nathan Whitlock, and I'm a writer. On this podcast, I speak to other writers about what happens when their new book is no longer new, and it's time to write another one. Before I introduce my guest, I wanted to let you know that I have a book that is not just newish, it's actually brand new. It's a novel called Lump, and it's published by the Rare Machines imprint at Dundurn Press. It's my third novel. I've read it, and it's good. If you'd rather not take my word for it, the Toronto Star has called Lump one of the must-read, hands-down best books of 2023 so far. You can find out more about Lump at nathanwhitlock.ca. My guest on this episode is Stuart Ross. Stuart is a writer, editor, teacher, and self-described small press gorilla. He's the author of over 20 books of poetry, fiction, and essays, and the recipient of the 2019 Harborfront Festival Prize and the 2010 Relit Prize for short fiction. His most recent works are The Book of Grief and Hamburgers, published by ECW Press in the spring of 2022, and I Am Claude Francois and You Are a Bathtub, published by Anvil Press in the fall of 2022. The Book of Grief and Hamburgers recently won the Trillium Book Award, and Ross himself was the subject of a special tribute night put on by his adopted town of Coburg, Ontario. Stuart and I talk about that tribute night and the mix of delight and embarrassment he felt around the whole event, about what he calls his neurotic drive to keep starting new writing projects, and about how he identifies with the students he teaches in his poetry workshops. I like talking to authors mainly when they're between books and they're in a quiet, kind of a quiet period. Yeah. But I feel like that doesn't really exist for you right now because in the last few months, I mean, you, you won the Trillium prize and congratulations. You were at Banff. Uh, You were in Toronto the other night doing a show, a performance with uh, some musicians and you even had, What's most amazing is you actually had a tribute night uh, put on in Coburg, where you where you live. Yeah. And you have a, a whole, you know, bag full of events and festivals and and performances and readings coming up in the fall. So I don't know that this is exactly a quiet period for you. I don't know. If this is exactly a, a fallow period. Um. But first of all, I want to know about this tribute night. Can you tell me about this this show that this event that happened in Coburg? Sounds yeah. amazing. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. There's a little indie bookstore here called Let's Talk Books, and Jennifer, who owns and runs the store, decided that I should be recognized. Um, and because I'm not really known here in Coburg, uh, there isn't any recognition. I'm not part of the the. Uh, the, the the poetry group there they hate me because I won't join them so uh, <laughs> that's okay why won't you join them oh you know I just it's I think we have really different uh, views and aims so I I'm just sort of more um insular in that way as a writer okay uh, so she um partnered with the art gallery of Northumberland which is a very very beautiful um uh small gallery in the town hall here 
and put on this event and sold tickets and invited uh, dignitaries, <laughs> the mayor and so forth, though the deputy mayor was the one who showed up, which was real nice. And um, she asked what else I'd like to see happening. And I said, I I'd love some music. And there's a really great musician here, Kate Boothman, AKA Katie Cruel, who just in fact toured with uh, Timber Tambor. Mm -hmm. uh, and she lives just outside of Coburg and she was game to do this. And David Dubucci, who's a former Ontario progressive conservative uh, MP, who I've recently uh, made acquaintance with and we get on well, even though uh, I'm a new Democrat and he's a conservative, um, he agreed to talk a bit about the Trillium because in fact, he was like a really, really fantastic um, promoter of the arts. He's a writer himself with books from ECW Press, in fact. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, okay, that's a conservative I can uh, have introduced me. <laughs> and uh, and they ended up selling about 50 tickets, which filled the small room. There was music, there were remarks, and then I did a reading and made people cry. And then there was <laughs> food and stuff, and we chatted, and it was really, really nice. Because it is strange, you know, you, you, there's the big Trillium night. And then if you're fortunate enough um, to win the Trillium, it's a really great night for you. And then absolutely nothing happens after that. At least that's right. my experience. It's not uh, like they send you on tour or like send you to all the radio stations or something. It's just kind of you get the check, you have the night and then you move on. Yeah, that's that's yeah, it's not like. Uh, yeah, that's basically what it's like. I didn't get invited to any festivals. Not a single person wanted to interview me except you. So thank you very, very much. <laughs> You're very welcome. You were wanting to interview me before I won the Trillium as well. I did. So it wasn't the Trillium that did it. Um, yeah, so it ended up being really nice. And what was important for me was in this town, which after 14 years of living here, after 50 years in Toronto, I still have been grappling with this concept of living in this small town. Um, there was something very, very welcoming about that and that evening that made me feel a little like, I wouldn't exactly say that I belong, but that I could find a comfortable place here, maybe. Yeah. That was the first first hint towards that after 14 yeah. years. Yeah. Although I, I, I saw um, a photo from the night that someone shared and it was you sitting on the floor, <laughs> kind of on, at the back or at the side, because there were no seats. The place was full. Uh, and I thought that's also very on brand that like the uh, <laughs> the person of honor is just, ah, it's OK, I'll sit on the floor. No problem. Well, to be honest, there was probably some psychological thing going on there because I felt very embarrassed about the whole thing. I felt embarrassed um, promoting an evening that was in honor of me. And I was embarrassed that all these people were gathering because of me. And uh, I think probably on some psychological level, sitting on the floor in the back of the room was the comfortable place for me. Also, yeah. the best view of, of, of Katie Cruel uh, performing. Right. It, it's, it does speak, though, to something I wanted to ask you about, which is whether you will acknowledge it or not or admit to it or just feel embarrassed about it there is this sense of a changing status you're you have a certain change of status in in terms of your position as a writer and i, I may be reading too much into this but i was looking at the bio note 
for you in your book, A Sparrow Came Down Resplendent, which was uh, 2016, Woolsack and Wynn. Yeah. And that bio was very much a certain kind of Stuart Ross bio in that it mentions that you made your first literary pamphlet on your dad's office copier, that you used to sell chapbooks, your own books on Young Street. You wore the sign that said writers going to hell. Yeah. It was very much about like, I am an outsider. I am not part of the establishment. I am not a, you know, quote unquote, respected figure. I am doing this uh, in my way. Yeah. And then the bio note for the Book of Grief and Hamburgers, the book that won the Trillium, which was 2022 ECW. That one is much more, it's full of all the awards, the translations, uh, many references to all the, you know, great writers in residence positions you've had. It's a very different tone. It's not the same sense of like, I'm just this, uh, you know, oddball outsider. It's more like, no, no, I have this position. I could be reading this, reading into this. It could be just like a weird publishing quirk, but it made me think like, oh, either he's becoming more comfortable with being, you know, a, an established figure, a kind of notable figure in the in the literary scene, or the publisher insisted you do that and you couldn't say no. No, it wasn't anything to do with the publisher. And it was probably a matter that I had a certain number of words. And then I thought, what's more important that I won this prize or had this residency or that I uh, wore a sign around my neck saying, uh, <laughs> don't buy my books or writer going to hell. And now that you've made me aware of it, I'm, I'm my next, my next bio is going to be so um, self-critical and. <laughs> oh no. Um, but, you know, I did, you know, I was just in Banff and I did um, an hour talk about my career as a writer and all of that stuff. I mean, selling books on the street, I knew would be so interesting to them. I'm so proud that I stood out on Young Street for a decade and sold uh, 7,000 chapbooks. I, so I do see that as an accomplishment and I know it's quirky, but that is still part of my biography. And that's a very, very big part of my life. But Wow, now that you point that out, it's huh. really strange to me. Yeah, I'm gonna fix that with the next bio. <laughs> no, and I don't say that to say like you've 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 clearly joined the establishment and you've become this boring, you know, can lit veteran. It's more just a, a sense of like a little more comfort with look, I've accomplished these things. I'm not just this guy out on the street anymore i have i actually have a place here that's, and i've earned it and you've earned it yeah that's true and obviously i don't feel like i'm part of the establishment but i i definitely feel like i have accomplished more things and as time has gone on they haven't been huge things though the trillium was pretty big and that's probably the first and last pretty big thing but um you've also won the harborfront festival prize i mean that was a few years ago but that's also a notable accomplishment. Yeah, yeah. Winning the Harborfront Festival Prize um, was uh, as shocking as this. But I did, I did make um, as shocking as winning the Trillium. I did make um, this decision when I was shortlisted for the Trillium. I said to my partner Lori, um, "I am not going to make all the stupid comments I usually make. Like this was clearly an administrative error." or right. a bureaucratic or bookkeeping um, uh, glitch. Um, 
and that I would sort of hold back on all of the sort of self-deprecating comments that I usually make as some kind of defense mechanism, but also because I sort of believe them. Um, though when I went up to be handed the trillion by the guy who uh, runs Ontario Creates, I sort of leaned over to him and whispered, I know this was a bureaucratic error or something <laughs> like that to him. And I just whispered that to him and he laughed and that was that. So I had to get it out of my system. I couldn't completely um, wipe that from my, my way of being and my way of thinking. I still see it as a kind of fluke, a weird convergence that three jury members of a prize all were open to this very quirky, unusual book that will disappoint book club, you know, the people who run book clubs and buy all the the Emma Donahue and Nathan Whitlock books are going to <laughs> all those up. people. Yeah. I'm going to get my, yeah. what the hell is this? Why did this get a prize? And they were all, all those jurors were willing to do it. And so it was an, a really interesting convergence of, of chance. I think. In, in all of the writers I've had on this podcast who won big awards like Lynn Cody and Carly Baker and Nassim Harab who won the GG for her children's book last year and yourself you all kind of share this oh pride in winning but also a healthy skepticism around the whole nature of it and a healthy sense of it's it is a fluke like you're you're lucky to have had this convergence of these three or four jury members because we've both served on juries and we know like there is no kind of scientific process of finding the best book. That thing doesn't exist. There's right. there's jockeying and there's discussions and there are agendas. And do we support newcomers or do we support established or we just go with the book we enjoyed the most or something? Or I also will say that's not probably a coincidence because I don't know that I would want to interview a writer who was like, yes, of course I won. But you and I also both know we've encountered, I'll say, some writers who have who go into it with that that approach, even to just be nominated. They're like, yes, well, of course I belong on that short list. Yeah. Yeah. Writers who write books that they feel is is the kind of book that might win such a prize. Yeah. The prize, I, the prize bait book. Yeah. 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 You mentioned that I, I wanted you on the podcast even before you won the Trillium, which of course I did. I will also say part of the reason you're on the podcast is I interviewed uh, a mutual friend, Elise Friedman. Yeah, great. It was and fun. after our discussion in the kind of like off the record part of the discussion, she said, oh, you should have Stuart on this. He would oh. be great. He would be great on this. He would have lots to say. And I was like, well, he's on my list. But I also worry because I want to talk to people when they're between books, again, when they're in a fallow period. <laughs> and Stuart never seems to be in a fallow period. He never seems to be between books. I mean, you did have uh, a book of grief and hamburgers come out in in twenty twenty two. You also had a book of short stories. I am Claude Francois, and you were a bathtub come yeah. out in the same year. I wonder, you know, because hamburgers has become this such a beloved book. And full disclosure, it was blurbed by my wife, our mutual friend, yeah. Megan Strymus, whose book is over my shoulder. You can't see it on the audio, but is a book you are responsible for, which also on the Trillium, yes or no. Do you ever worry, do you ever feel like, oh, that book of short stories got, has been overshadowed a little bit? You know, I don't really know if the book of short stories got overshadowed or if it would have gotten equally 
unequally um, unequal reception of just being ignored had there not been the Book of Grief and Hamburgers. Short story collections don't get a lot of attention usually unless they're by Alistair MacLeod or Alice Munro or um, someone else whose initials are AM. But, um, <laughs> I, uh, Alan Alanis Morissette, if she came oh, up with a collection. <laughs> Alanis Morissette, yeah. Anne um, Murray. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, so I do think that maybe, you know, I thought it could go either way. I thought either this book is going to be overshadowed by the Book of Grief and Hamburgers because the Book of Grief and Hamburgers, you know, when I was thinking that had been um, shortlisted for the Trillium, which it absolutely wasn't going to win, or that the interest in my work that would be stirred up by the Trillium would, um, would mean that. I'm Claude Francois and you are a bathtub would get more attention and more interest. But I have learned from other writers that generally speaking, if you win uh, a fairly big prize or a major prize with one book, and then you have another book, especially in another genre, no one, like if you win or get shortlisted for the GG or the Giller or whatever for a novel, no one really is going to care about your book of poetry that comes out the next season. That's not what they're interested in. Um, so I don't really know why I am Claude Francois and you are a bathtub, which I think contains the best Canadian short story. My first story called the elements of the short story, I think is the, the best Canadian short story ever published. Wow. Yeah. And yet, um, <laughs> um, that's a claim. <laughs> I'm only being, you know, 92% uh, serious about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's a good book. I think it's a really unusual book. I think it's a fascinating uh, miscellany of different approaches to the short story, that book. But yeah, there's almost no interest in it. It got one very fine review, I believe, by Stephen Beattie. And, uh, and that's been it. And I think that will be its fate. And hopefully it'll slowly sell some copies and press might do another book by me in the future. Um, I have mostly my books come out to mostly silence. Um, you mentioned A Sparrow Came Down Resplendent. And I will tell you that that is the one poetry book that I wrote with the intention of writing something that would not necessarily be a prize winner, um, but would sort of have, bro have broader appeal than most of the wacko poetry that I write. It was going to be the, a more personal book, more stuff, even in its surrealism, um, um, poems about my family, uh, about my history. Um, that's why I, I, I don't know if you'll recall, I, I boycotted it um, at its launch. At the <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> I, I stood out uh, protesting uh, uh, Stuart Ross commercial sellout boycott him. Um, so that was a book that I, I deliberately tried to write something that it would have broader appeal. And I don't know why I even started talking about that or how I got over to that from whatever the hell we were talking about <laughs> before. But I generally tend to write books that really, really interest me um, because I want to sometimes meet certain challenges or see if certain things are possible on the page. And then whatever happens to them when they get out there, I don't have much control over. Right. Every so often, 
a book comes out that's a bit of a fluke. Oh yeah, The Sparrow Came Down or Splendid got more reviews. That was what I was going to say. It got it got reviewed. So it did get reviewed more broadly than almost any of my other poetry books since the early 2000s. Um, but I don't, my intention is always to write a book that uh, fill, I think fills a gap and fills a gap that is something that I want to read. I was, I mean, A Sparrow Came Down Resplendent does feel like, I wouldn't even say a, a, a commercial book in your, in your, you know, uh, it, it, but it does feel more like a, um, I, I can't even, I don't know how to say this without it sounding demeaning and I don't mean it to sound, but it feels more like a regular poetry book. I mean, first of all, it, it it has it names a bird in the title, <laughs> which is always a good move for a poetry collection. I think it has this you know beautiful painting on the cover, but also in terms of the form. And again, tell me if I'm wrong. It felt like the poems are more. You felt like you were you were not as hybridized. You weren't going all off the margins and pulling together all kinds of different things, which is closer to where, where you are in a lot of your books, where you're like, it's an essay, poetry, memoir, slash script, plaque, slash, you know, murder mystery, like whatever you want to throw in, you're in there. But that one felt more like, no, no, this is a poetry collection, capital P, capital C. Yeah. And I also, I think the thing about it too, is it is absolutely more, um, recognizably personal i think that all my poetry books are pretty personal but sometimes mm -hmm. all that personal thing goes through so many weird circus mirrors and uh, conjurations and so forth that people don't necessarily recognize the personal nature of it but it's a very blatantly personal book in which the very first poem is talks about my mother's death and mm -hmm. about my father my reaction and my father's reaction and there's all sorts of poems about my family and they're sort of surreal but there they are they're recognizably so um, personal poems um, and I did think that it was a sort of my the closest I could get to doing a commercial book of poetry and I look at it now and although it is recognizable as a book of poetry and as a book of poetry that has a lot of personal material in it it's still a weird ass book of poetry oh sure yeah when I realized at the time yeah also we're talking within the within the realm within the context of uh, a, a poetry collection published in Canada by an independent press, that yeah. level of commercial. We're not talking about, <laughs> you know, uh, you didn't like co-write it with Hillary Clinton or with, you know, <laughs> James Patterson or something like that. It's it's you chose to put four wheels on a car instead of 28 or 36. Like it's it's within a certain context still. But it, it is interesting that that even you note that that it it does feel more um uh again there's no there's no adjective i can use so i'll just use it more like a conventional uh in terms of its approach in terms of even just the again the 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 the, the cover and the packaging the title the but staying within a certain boundaries of form and i wanted to ask you about form too in terms of how you approach and how intentional you are when it comes to form do you just go and then halfway through you're like well whatever this is is what it is or do you actually sit down and say no i actually i'm in a poetry mood and i'm i'm sticking within certain form formal conventions 
Um, even with the weirdness, the Stuart Ross weirdness is going to come in there, whatever. Or I'm writing fiction or I'm writing short fiction. Or do you just, you know, find out when it's done, what the what what form it might or what category it might fall into? I think I get some hints when I start writing. Like I I don't really sit down generally unless I'm continuing on a project that has become clear what it is or what it might be or what things it might be. Um, if I sit down to, and end up writing a short story or the beginning of a novel or a poem, I don't usually know what I'm going to be doing until I sit down and, and then I just start writing it. And it just sort of automatically takes one uh, direction or another. And sometimes it does change direction partway through and sometimes other kinds of genres leak through. That's definitely um, part of what happens. Um, there have been books where I sat down, I had a little novel called Pockets um, mm -hmm. a few years ago, and I thought it was in response to a book I'd read when I was a teenager by a, a then Toronto writer, Toby McLennan. It was a book called One Walked Out of Two and Forgot It. It was published by Something Else Press, a really weird avant-garde press in the US. And it was a novel that blew my mind when I was about 14 or 15, just after it was published. And I read it several times over the years. I don't reread a lot of books because I'm such a slow reader, but it's a tiny book, 90 pages with just a little chunk of text on the bottom of each page. And I thought, I'm going to write, when I read it again, maybe it was eight years ago or so, I thought, I love this book and I want to write a book like this. And I want to put the text on the bottom of the page. And I want to write a book that's an homage to Toby McLennan and, uh, and to this book. And I'm going to do it in one day. So I sat down to write a novel one day and it took me five days um, and then a little bit of editing later on. So that one, I absolutely knew I was writing a novel, though it, it ended up getting reviewed as a book of prose poems and, <laughs> you know, and, and, and short stories and people don't really recognize what, what I'm writing often. The Book of Grief and Hamburgers, for example, has been, uh, people have talked about it like on Goodreads. Some people say, wow, this is a poetry book I really, really like. And I don't know how they think it's a poetry book. Someone else uh, referred to it as a novel. Said this is <laughs> right. Goggled on the Trillium Night. Said, "Oh, I've got this signed copy of this book. It's, it's. Uh, I've never read a novel. I was so absorbed in." And um, so, even whatever I intend um, doesn't really matter to how it's. It isn't really connected to how it's received um, with each of the books. So, um, I did want to. If I can just do a little hijacking, I did want to go back to what you said Absolutely. about being between books. I, I, I'm sort of more like it's be, my thing is being between contracts because I always have a lot of books on the go. I've got about, mm -hmm. uh, I think I've got nine books that I've started, three novels, and there's another one I really want to start, and a couple of books of poetry, and another memoir, and another book of short stories. And I've always got a lot of these things on the go. And I think that I create new projects all the time because I want to avoid finishing the ones that I've begun because that's a lot of responsibility. You know, when I say I started three novels, I'm like 20 to 30 pages into each of them. And they'll probably only be about 90 pages if I finish them anyway. So maybe I'm a third of the way through, but a couple of them I haven't touched in five or six years, but they're still in play. And at some point, they're like a horse. I'm going to jump on and take it, you know, to the finish line when I feel enough guilt that I've got to finish something. 
And also there's a panic that I have when a book is published and there's not another one lined up. I immediately start feeling as soon as the launch is over, I feel very panicked because I don't have a book coming out. Um, even though I just had a book come out literally hours earlier. And it's perhaps it's because it's my only justification for my own existence is that I write shit and I try and do weird things and interesting things and get them out into the world. And if I don't, if I'm not doing that, then what use am I? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and and so I, I get into this kind of weird panic and I don't understand how other writers take their time and meticulously create like you're three or four years between books. Well, more than that, but yeah. <laughs> okay. It's, but I, I, I think that's great. I don't know how you do it. Um, I wish that I could take my time and really think about something for, you know, one project at a time for years um, a lot of writers I admire, that is exactly what they do, even poets, even they do, even poets, some um, who take, you know, six or seven years between books. It's so incredible. And I, I half joke that my standards are so low for myself <laughs> that I'll publish any shit that I write. And I've been lucky enough that I can find a publisher for anything, just about anything that I write. Um, and also I joke that it's all about the PLR, the public lending rights money. So the important thing is to get as many titles out there so I can get as much uh, money, the PLR, of course, for people who are listening who don't know, is money that writers get um, to make up the fact that their books are in libraries. People aren't buying the books, but they're borrowing from the library. So we get some compensation from that. And the maximum is 4,500 bucks, which I hit once a couple of years ago. Uh, Congratulations. Only, only time I matched, uh, you know, Margaret Atwood in anything uh, <laughs> uh, financial, probably. Um, so uh, I, so it's not true that my standards are low, but I think it's true that I'm interested in what certain processes can produce. And to me, often um, that's a val, you know, the, the product is valid because of the way it was created or the intention to create something interesting. And as long as it's interesting to me at the end, um, then to me, it's publishable. There's definitely things that I uh, have written that I think are bad and I wouldn't publish. Mostly those are things that I abandon. But if mm -hmm. I finish something, it's usually because I found it interesting enough to take it to the finish line. It is interesting that you 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 bring up that idea of of basically not having a fallow period. You're not one of those people who needs to kind of go walk in the woods and recharge for six months or just go into input mode. Or you do have that sense of panic of like, no, there needs to be work being done. There needs to be something being worked on. A process needs to begin. And it's it relates to the question I had about like how you view your, your you know, you you have dozens and dozens of books that you've published and you say, like they if they've pub if they are published it's because you got to them to a point that you're proud of them and they need to be out in the world but someone who publishes only you know every seven or eight years and has a, a small handful of books will look at those books very differently than someone who is putting out multiple books a year plus chat books plus they will they will view them 
probably in a more precious way. They'll be more in the sense they'll be maybe more precious about them. <laughs> Whereas I wonder how you look, whether you look at it all as a as a whole, or whether you kind of see each book as like that one nailed it, that one came close, that one did what I wanted it. Yeah, that one was I, I enjoyed it, but maybe it didn't do exactly what it needed to do. Like, do you have a lot of thought about the 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 particular books separate from each other? Or do you kind of move on to the next one and you're like, I got to move on and, and the next book is going to be the, the one I'm thinking about? I, I think there for a long time, I would have said that the whole thing of being a writer is like being the character in the Stephen Crane poem who's uh, pursuing the horizon and a uh, guy running after the horizon and someone stops him and says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm, 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 I've got to reach the horizon. And the other guy says, you can never reach the horizon. And first guy says you lie and he ran on and <laughs> I, would, I would have said that and I do believe that to a certain degree but I do you know thinking that I'm always trying to write that poetry book that I think is just absolutely captures everything I've been trying to do but I've but two things have happened one is that I've written books that I'm satisfied with I think Pockets was a really great little novel it got absolutely no attention but I think it's a, a perfect little novel and it's exactly the novel that I would have liked to have read at the time that I wrote it. Um, I'm really proud of I Am Claude Francois and You Are a Bathtub. Um, I, I'm, I'm proud of those books. Um, and I think they've achieved things, but I just want to keep trying to achieve different kinds of things. Um, so a book comes out and then there's something else I want to see if I can do. Like uh, the short story collection I'm working on now it originally started all the all the stories would be two pages long and there'd be 50 of them. And I've got about 35 of them and I've decided to actually go by and go back and just expand each of the stories. So I've never done that before. Um, here's a, a thing that I thought was a good two page story. What if it was a four or five page story? And um, and so I'm going back and expanding those and it'll gradually become hopefully book length and I'll live long enough and, and, and publish it. Um, Nathan, I apologize because I always start talking and I don't remember um, what where I started or what horizon I was heading for. <laughs> so um, I'm going to jump again because I wanted to. Oh, and I did want to mention that I don't always write. It's like being between books, but always having a book on the go doesn't mean that I write every day. I don't get up and okay. a.m. to 8 a.m. or from uh, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. or anything like that. I go for weeks without writing almost anything but I do read a ton. Um, I'm a copy editor and an editor. Uh, so I read in that way, but I also read. I also have on the go probably 10 or 12 books that I'm reading and they're open all over my apartment um, or have little bookmarks or dog-eared pages or something. And I just dip into this one and then that one and then that one. And I consider that writing. I consider that being in training or actually learning possibilities uh so i consider that writing but actually physically writing sentences i write in in bursts that are usually the result of intense guilt that has built up that i actually have to produce some pages um so i did want to clarify that it's not that i'm always sitting at the uh at the typewriter or a quill in hand um writing uh, <laughs> writing the next book I also want you to un undo your necktie and take <laughs> off the fedora. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, uh, but I also wanted to mention Elise uh, a little more. Elise Friedman, who is a very dear friend and a writer who I admire so much. I admire her for her work, 
but also for the incredible determination that she has. And she works on one book at a time. Mm -hmm. She, you know, she's working on a novel now, I know, but she has the next one in mind and she's eager to get to it, but she's going to finish the novel she's working on now. Um, Or she sits down and says, I'm going to write a book of poetry. Or she sits down and says, I'm going to write a screenplay or a play for the stage or a book of short stories. And she sits down and that's what she does for the next two to four years or however long it takes her to create those. And I really, I'm both jealous of that kind of focus and the lack of chaos or that I, I, what I would see as an absence of chaos in her mind, though, I don't know. Um, uh, I, but I really admire that focus and that determination and that professionalism. And she's published a lot of books that way. I mean, she must have seven or eight books. I really hope she'll do enough. She'll one day say, I want to do a second book of poetry because I thought Know Your Monkey was such a, was such a good book. Um, and I, I suspect that that's the way you write. You, you have a project and you sit down and you do not stand up again for four years or six years. Until right. The book is done. And I, it, it just seems so organized and sane. And the results it just seem to me that they're sort of more holistic um, when, you, when you're a writer in that way. I believe Lisa and I even talked about that in our conversation was this idea of like she would yeah. feel she would feel guilty. To, even though she has this other idea in mind, she would feel guilty and that she's kind of like betraying the book that she's working on to go and, you know, fool around with this with this other book. <laughs> We're completely different kinds of writers, Elise and I, or um, you and I, or you and Elise. Um, I mean, we're all very different kinds of writers. I admire it because I admire the determination. I admire her uh, self-discipline. and. Um, I admire that she sits down and works straight through on a book for a few years and produces something that's really, really good. And I'm jealous of it because I just think it must be a much more organized way to live and feel more organized psychologically and less torn in so many directions and less of a feeling of desperation. Um, When you've started nine books and you're 64 years old, you go... How many more, if it, if I finished all of those books, that would be nine, and one was published a year. Well, I'd be 73 um, by the time the last book that I've already started is finished, but I'm going to keep adding new books. And so eventually I'm going to die with a lot of unfinished projects. I know that sounds <laughs> crazy, but this is the kind of thing that torments me. I, I, I can't start... I can't keep starting new things because eventually I am not going to be able to finish them. And, um, and I should, I, I, it's, it's completely neurotic. And I'm sure that, that Elise has her own neuroses uh, around (laughs) writing and process. And perhaps you do as well, but uh, this particular chaos um, that I feel in my head and um, pressure that I inflict on myself um, in all these different directions at once. It's just just uncomfortable. But I also believe, Nathan, that um, this kind of um, chaotic way of working is responsible f- for the kinds of books that I put out. Hence, I have poetry books that are these crazy miscellanies um, of things. You know, people really like 
a single book where all the poems are written in a similar form on the same theme. And that's what that's what wins prizes. That's what sells books. That's what gets reviewed these days. A book of just a bunch of poems that I threw together because I was trying all these different experiments and I threw it all into one book. People are less interested in that, but that's okay because it's the kind of book that I want to write. But I, and so a book like I Am Claude Francois and You Are a Bathtub, which is a real mishmash of different kinds of short stories. And even the book of grief and hamburgers is it's disorganized. It's not in any kind of chronological order. There are a few poems thrown in. There are little fragments. There are things I wrote and I don't even understand why I wrote them. And I even acknowledge that in the book, but that was the chaos that my mind was in at the time I wrote it. And not only because of the kind of writer I am, but because my brother just died, my best friend was dying. All I could think about was the deaths of mentors of mine and family members of mine. And on some level, I thought when I realized that what I'm writing could be a book, that the book should reflect just the kind of weird tornado swirling through my head with, um, you know, desks and giraffes and and paper clips um, swirling around in there. I did hear someone, and I th- I'd have to look this up, but I think it was Henry Rollins, of all people, said that the reason that we go and we buy more books than we'll ever read, uh-huh. yeah. part of the reason we do that, in some irrational part of our brain, we think that means we will live long enough to read all those books. So if we have many more books than we can ever get to, well, obviously we're going to have to live till we're 150. So I wonder if you've taken this to another level of, if I have 15 books on the go that will keep me publishing until I'm 93, well, that's immort- you're, you're, you're seeking immortality <laughs> through well, constantly keeping new books, new projects. If I was an optimist or a, a person who was very positive about things, I might say yes, and maybe on some unconscious level, that's what I'm attempting. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure Henry Rollins doesn't mean we literally believe that. Oh, I don't know what Henry Rollins um, believes. Um, I I don't think that's it. it it's, it's, a, it's, it's, for me, it's all desperation as well. And it's funny you mentioned the book thing. I do have probably enough books that I would need two or three more lifetimes to read all of the ones I have. And I keep buying them and ordering them and going to bookstores. But I, I want those books around me, even if I just read a few pages of a book, that's really interesting to me. I don't need to finish books and I don't finish most of the books that I start. And this brings me to in uh, first year university up at York University. I can't, did you go? No, you didn't go to York. You were not. No, I was, I went to Concordia in Montreal. You went to Concordia. Um, there was this guy named, uh, uh, was it Harry or Henry Gerling? Henry, Ger- Harry Gerling, I think his name was. He was this little old guy, sort of looked like the penguin from Batman with the British accent. And he wore a little, little jacket like that. Anyway, he was, uh, he was such a fascinating guy. And it was a course, and I don't remember what the course was called, but he assigned seven books. And I remember The Crying of Lot 49, Ulysses, um, um, something by Gunter Grass. I can't remember all, what the seven books were now, but our assignment was to read seven pages from each book each week. 
So we weren't reading oh. because we were interested in what happens. And on the very first day, he said, okay, today we are going to write a sentence on the board. And he said, let's make a really good sentence. Let's spend these two hours together writing a good sentence. And so we started off with a very simple sentence and then we extrapolated on it. We put in some adjectives and we took some out. And eventually we had probably a 20 or 25 word sentence up on the board. It was a really good sentence. Um, and that was an incredible lesson for me. And I don't think I realized how important that course was for me until many, many years or perhaps decades later. When I realized the way I read is I'm looking for really good sentences, really good writing. I do get caught up in plot. I love Patricia Highsmith. Um, you know, I, I, I read things for plot sometimes, but it's not essential for me. Um, plot is just one of the many things uh, a book can do dialogue and description and 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 sentences and experiment and all of those things are equally important to me. But really, interesting sentences are the most important thing. And so I buy all these books and I feel like I always flip them open when I get them. I always read the first sentence and then I flip through the books and I read little chunks of them. And I I've, I've come to peace with if I never read that book, I just got. 11 minutes or 32 minutes worth of what that writer um, accomplished mm -hmm. in their particular way of writing. Um, but there are, there are books that I absolutely want to finish, but like my writing, I'm always reading tons and tons of different books at the same time. And um, I've come to peace with that. I've come to peace with not being able to read every book that I own. I haven't yet come to peace with not being able to finish every writing project that I've begun. I wonder too, when you mentioned that class and that course, because one thing you also do to keep that keeps you manically busy is you do a lot of teaching. You do a lot of workshops, a lot of poetry workshops. And for a lot of writers, when they do teaching, it's even if they're, you know, they they do a good job and they want to 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 engage the students. It's it's a paycheck. It's I'm not really there as a writer. I'm just there to show up and I give some thoughts and I give some direction and maybe one or two of the students will go on to publish a book. My sense is that when you do workshops, it's much more creative than that. Like you are. Not that you're actually putting together anthologies of what comes out of those workshops. It's not about that, but there's something being created in the workshop. You actually want to, to collaborate on something and, and engage with the group in the same sense of that class, all building the sentence together. You're not going into it to say like, well, I need an extra few hundred bucks. So I'll go here and I'll do my bag of tricks and go home and pocket the money. You know, no shame in that. Yeah. But my sense is that for the most part, your workshops are like, no, this is part of my creative work. This is this is a creative act. Yeah, I like a lot of what you said, especially and I hadn't thought of it ever that idea when you mentioned collaboration. Um, I'm really interested. I, I really the way I throw challenges to myself in writing, I wonder if I can write a poem in which, you know, I do this, this or that. Um is that possible to write a poem that way? That's the kind of thing I usually um, assign in workshops. And I'm really excited to see 
how students will respond. And sometimes it's bleh, but I like to see um, how they struggle to create something unlike anything that they themselves have written before. And then the great bonus is if they write something and say, I can't believe I wrote anything. I can't believe I wrote something that sounds like this. I love this. I want to try more things like this. I want to go off in this direction. Or even just really, you know, reading somebody's work and saying, you know, this is pretty good. It's, you're doing some really good things here, but like go read Alice Notley because I think she will set you free. And then they go off and read Alice Notley and go, oh my God, that was a revelation. Like my whole, all the possibilities have suddenly exploded for me. And that's so exciting for me to see. And I think what it is, is identify, I identify so much with the students in my classes because they're at a point where they're discovering things. And it brings me back to being a writer when I was 13, 14, 15 years old and discovering all these new writers. And also I went to this alternative school where you know we had Joe Rosenblatt and uh, Victor Coleman and David Young come in and work with us and introduce us to writers and ways of writing that were so exciting. And that excites me and that feeds my own writing as well. I mean, there's the great pleasure of seeing people make discoveries and produce things they didn't know they were capable of. And then <clears throat> there's the fact that that stuff also really um, ignites my own excitement about writing again. Because uh, it brings me back to that moment where it was just this explosion of possibilities. So part, partly it's greedy because it really um, <laughs> my own writing and helps me write. And I also write in my own workshops um, <laughs> and, uh, and publish uh, much of that work. Um, but it just, it's just the energy that comes, uh, that, that emerges in the class. That is an energy that I can, um, hijack into my own writing. It's also more pleasurable in writing, um, than <laughs> itself. Like going, going into a workshop, especially going into like a high school or an elementary school or, uh, doing a, an introductory night class thing through university is way more fun and way more pleasurable than sitting down and doing the pulling teeth of actually writing, which I don't like the act of very much. I just like the results. What Happened Next is produced and edited by me. The music playing under my voice is by the great Alex Lukashevsky who is letting me use it for free. You can find more of Alex's music at alukashevsky.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be a new episode every Monday. Please buy more books, and not just new ones. <laughs>